First, let me say the response was overwhelming to my last episode. People said a very enthusiastic yes to more episodes directly on critical thinking. So look forward to more of those in the future. Thank you everyone for the feedback, and I thank you very much for listening. But hey guys, that episode had a few major, obvious sound problems with it. There were sound effects covering over vocals, and the background music was too loud, and and it's some oddities. Please, if that happens again, let me know ASAP so I can correct it ASAP. This episode is going to be a little different than most. I say that a lot, don't I? Anyway, this is going to seem to break my rule of not requiring you to do research. Well, any research you do is optional. However, in this case, that research would be limited to the King James Bible. Since this is supposedly the best-selling book in history, I think we can agree on its contents. Or can we? Probably not. If you do a tiny amount of checking, you'll notice that there are dozens of translations of the Bible out there. Some are meant to correct language translation errors that occurred in the King James Bible. Others are meant to update the language style from ye olde English to something more modern. And still others are meant to leave out what they don't like and add things they do. Regardless of whether you agree with it or not, the King James Bible is in quite heavy usage. Supposedly, it's the number one translation of the Bible for English-speaking Christians. But that's just what I hear, so I could be full of it. I do know that Kent Hovind believes that it is the literal word of God, so that's good enough for me. Let's go. The interesting thing is that numerous Christians I know haven't actually read this tome. Sure, they read passages, but they haven't read it from cover to cover. I also know of atheists that haven't read it either, but that makes sense. I mean, why read something you don't agree with? That time could be better spent with the wind flowing through fields of barley, with the sun overhead and its jealous sky as you lie in fields of gold. So this episode is more of a public service announcement for believers and non-believers who haven't read the Bible. Sure, you've heard people say that there's some seriously weird crap in this thing, but uh, honestly, I couldn't make this up if I tried. So I'm going to spin a few tales from the Old Testament of the King James Bible for you. I won't be reading directly from it, as that would be boring and would be just like sitting in Sunday school. Instead, I'm I'm going to semi-paraphrase them so we can get to the meat of each tale. I'll tell you each book and chapter so you can look it up if you don't believe me. I can hear you now. Well, that's the Old Testament. That doesn't apply in today's society. Jesus changed the rules. Well, I'll agree that it doesn't apply in today's society. But I'll have something to say about that at the end. Enjoy. Our first little ditty is Numbers, Chapter 11. First, let me give you some background. You should already know this, but just to get you up to speed. Moses has freed his people from slavery in Egypt. They're cruising around the desert following God, who appears as a cloud. Now, if you think about the Egyptian desert, there's not a lot to eat there. So God has given them something called manna to eat. It just appears in the morning, and it apparently is about as tasty as day-old shoe leather. These people have been walking around seemingly aimlessly in the hot sun for months. They have nothing to do but walk, eat, and sleep. They're bored, tired... And they complain constantly. I imagine they smell fairly ripe, too. This is where the chapter starts. Numbers, chapter 11. And God doth hear these people bitching, and it kindles the hell out of his anger. So he doth burn those that complain. Yeah, he says. You want to cry? I'll give you something to cry about. And yea, the people cried unto Moses. And Moses prayed unto the Lord, and the fire was quenched. Immediately following this display... The people started weeping. Oh, who shall give us flesh to eat? 
Oh man, we used to eat fish and cucumbers and melons, and now all we eat is this crappy manna. And even when we try to give it flavor, the best we can do is make it taste like oil. Lo, that night after dew fell on the camp, more manna appeared. Hallelujah! More of that awful, barely life-sustaining substance of which I just said I didn't want more. Lo, and the people wept openly, and did greatly pisseth off God. And Moses goes to him and says, What did I do to you that you must place this awful burden on my shoulders, that I must bear alone? What's up with that? I assume he's referring to the burden of having to tell people how great their God is, even though nothing good has come of this adventure. Yea, and Moses continues, God, come on, man. Give me some meat. I can't take this anymore. Tell you what, you give us some meat, you can kill me. Will that satisfy your bloodlust? You apparently don't care about me anyway, you cloud-looking mother... And God, so touched by Moses' plea, says to him, Quick, gather ye seventy old people, bring them to me, and ye shall share the burden. And then tell the people that on the morrow shall they eat meat. I'm gonna give you meat. I'm gonna give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils. Seriously, it says that. Until it comes out at your nostrils. I'm gonna make ye hate meat, because nothing do ye but complain about me when it was me, me, who freed you from slavery. I freed you from working, having food and water and shade. I freed you from the tyranny of your owners, who actually gained little if they beat you to death, because then they'd have no one to do your job. And I replaced that with glorious freedom. The freedom to walk all day in the desert. The freedom to have little food or water. The freedom to do what I say, or I'll ignite ye like a 4th of July barbecue. How dare ye complain? I'll show ye. Lo, and presently, Moses replies, There's no way you can feed us meat for a month. There's like 600,000 of us. What are you going to do, kill every bird, goat, and fish around? I'd like to see that. And God doth reply, Oh, yeah? Yea, and Moses informs the people, and seventy geezers gathers he. And the cloud of the Lord comes down, and to geezers each is given special powers. Lo, out of nowhere doth a mighty wind cometh, and bloweth quails from the sea. Let's see. The quails do fall from the sky in great numbers, and do bury the people in both carcasses and guano. The people spendeth all day and night gathering unto them, but God, in a rare turn of events, hath tricked them. Yea, the birds are diseased, or rotten, or, or something, because a plague doth sweep through the people before even one eats of their delicious desert quail. <laughs> My wrath is complete. Take that, people whom I force to follow me and then don't like where I'm going. And they did name that place Kibrathatava because people were buried there. Anyone who was left alive, left. The end. Okay, so in the end, God didn't give them meat for a month, and it was more likely that the only thing issuing forth from their nostrils was vomit caused by the plague he kindled against them. But there's an underlying theme throughout the entire Exodus story. These people keep complaining to God, and he punishes them for it. Then they start complaining again, and he punishes them again. Now, I'm not an animal behavior expert, but I suspect even a gerbil will realize that after two or three times of being punished by the same person, that said gerbil shouldn't mess with that person anymore. This tells me that even the people who were there, the Jews being led out of Egypt, didn't believe it was God. If they did, they'd shut their yaps after the eighth or ninth time God punished them for questioning them. But in the Bible, it's his immediate wrath shuts them up for a few days, but then it's like they get to thinking about it and maybe figured out the trick and start whining some more. Anyway, so what's next? Numbers 22. By the way, God's followers are called the Chosen Ones or the Children of Israel. Well, at this point in the Bible, God has been sending them all across the countryside, kicking ass and taking names. With God on their side, they only lose every fifth fight. 
That's where our story begins. Numbers 22. One of the Moabites, Balak, sees that the children of Israel are licking up the countryside like an ox licketh up the grass. He fears the Moabites are the next target, so he sends for help to fight off the good God-fearing children of Israel that have terrorized numerous nations, slaughtered children, and burned cities to the ground. One guy he asks for help is Balaam. Balak, Balaam, yeah, this is worse than a Robert Jordan novel. Valen, Varen, Verdin, Verrill, Beleaned. Balaam says, Wait here, God will tell me what to do tonight. That night, God tells him, Do not help the Moabites, the children of Israel are blessed. The next morning, Balaam tells the messengers to leave. They do, but Balak sends more messengers. But this time, they're more honorable messengers, as if you're going to defy God because the personal quality of the messenger is higher. Balaam says, Look, guys, even if you offered me Balak's house and riches, I could not go. God himself told me not to. You heard what he did to those people just for complaining about the food? But I tell you what, despite what I just said, wait here and I'll go ask God again tonight. I mean, he doesn't mind answering the same question twice. So that night, Balaam is visited by God, and God says, Yeah, go ahead, go with him. But later, I'm going to tell you to do something, and you'd better do it. The next morning, Balaam jumped out of bed, saddled his ass, and heads off to help the Moabites. And in a rare moment of anger, God was pissed. How dare Balaam do something that God said he couldn't do and then later changed his mind and said he could do? So God, holding a sword, appears before Balaam's ass. God is only visible to the ass. Now seeing a swordsman suddenly appear freaks the ass out and he turns around and heads off into the field. Balaam spikes the hell out of his ass and turns it around. Suddenly, God appears before the ass only again, and this time, the ass stumbles into a wall and crushes Balaam's mighty foot. Balaam hits the ass again and then starts her going in the right direction once more. Suddenly, God appears before the ass only once again, and this time, the ass just sits down. Man, there's a lot of ass in the Bible. Balaam is more pissed than the Lord himself and starts wailing on his ass with a stick. God then gives the beast the ability to speak. Not only to understand Balaam's language, but the ability to move its lips to form sounds it's never made before. The ass speaks. Why are you beating me, Wilbur? I mean, Balaam. Balaam, who doesn't find the idea of a talking ass even remotely unusual because he's seen Ace Ventura, replies, Because you mocked me. Why, if I had my sword, I would kill you right now. The ass replies, But haven't I been your ass since I was born? When have I ever mocked you? God, growing weary of watching this touching display of man and ass learning the depths of their friendship, appears before Balaam and demands to know why he's beaten his ass not once, not twice, but thrice. Then, without waiting for an answer, probably because he's God and should therefore already know the answer, tells Balaam that he, God, blocked the way and the ass fled from his sword-wielding visage lest she be slain. Did I mention the ass was a female? It's not important. Balaam cries, I have sinned. I didn't know you were there. I'll go home now for my awful, awful sin of not being able to detect the presence of invisible deities. Since when is the inability to see God a sin? God tells Balaam, No, don't go home. Continue on your course. But later, I'm going to tell you something to do, and you'd better do it. At this point, Balaam is probably thinking, You gave me that message last night, not 24 hours ago. So I do what you say, then you block my passage, only to tell me again? Now I am terrified of you. You're crazy and forgetful, the worst kind of crazy. 
So when Balaam gets to Balak's palace, Balaam tells Balak that he shall only speak what God tells him to. The end. What? You, you want to know what happened then? Well, I, I could say to find out. Read chapter 23! Actually, all that builds up to something incredibly anticlimactic. Over the next two chapters, Balaam tells Balak to build a bunch of altars and then burn oxen and rams upon each one. Yeah, there's a ton of animal sacrifices in the Bible. The big thing God wanted Balaam to do was tell Balak that he, Balaam, couldn't go against God or his followers. So basically, the big secret was what Balaam had already said. So let's summarize. Balak asks Balaam for help. Balaam says, God told me not to. Balak says, come on. Balaam asks God again, and he says, Well, okay, but you must deliver a message. Balaam leaves, but is stopped by God, who says, You must deliver a message. Balaam gets there and says, God told me to give you the following messages. I can't help you because God told me not to. But I'm going home. Do you see how when people say the Lord works in mysterious ways, just how mysterious of a way it is? I mean, what to us mere mortals appears to be an overly complicated plan of an absent-minded power-mad lunatic that likes to scare animals is in fact, uh, I don't know how to complete that sentence. Let me directly read one short passage to you. It's from Book 2 of Samuel, Chapter 6. King David and his men are transporting the Ark, uh, you know, that thing from Raiders of the Lost Ark, through a town. And when they came to Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the Ark of God. Basically, God had told people to never touch his precious box. This guy merely was trying to steady it as it was rocked by the oxen, and BAM! God kills him. I told you not to touch my box. I only know absolute rules, and if the box is by itself truly dangerous to mortal humans, well, I have no way to safeguard against that. I mean, I'm just a cloud. Now let's jump a few chapters later to chapter 11, still in book 2 of Samuel. This is about wonderful King David, who everyone holds in the highest esteem. After many battles and killing the children of Ammon, King David decides to stay in Jerusalem. One night, he couldn't sleep, so he gets up and takes a leisurely stroll on the roof. While there, he, he spies a woman bathing. <laughs> the woman is very beautiful to look upon. So after peeping on the roof, he gets someone to learn who she is. I wish I had those kind of resources. She is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah, with his legendary heap. So, so David sends messengers to fetch her. He shags a rotten yeah, and she catches preggers. I, I like that her wishes, either for David or against, are completely omitted. Her desire is unimportant. She's a woman. God's right-hand man wants her, and she has no say. Lo, after she misses her period, she tells David she's with child. So David does the honorable thing, of course. He does what any honorable man of literally biblical proportions would do. He has her husband sent to the battle front line so he'll be killed. Bathsheba mourns her husband's death all afternoon, then moves in with David, becomes his wife, and bears him a son. And the Lord was not pleased with David. The end. So, so, so let's take a look at this. A loyal servant tries to keep God's magic box from falling off a cart. Oh, that's instant death. A king peeps on a woman, finds out she's married, and decides that's even more enticing, gets her pregnant, and has her husband killed, and you've merely displeased God. 
Makes sense. Well, you're saying, oh, but God is brewing up some terrible wrath for old David. Let's flash forward to David's deathbed. I'll read this verbatim for you. This is the first book of Kings, chapter 1. Now King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he gat no heat. Wherefore his servant said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord the king may get heat. So his punishment is to live a long life and have virgins warm him on his deathbed. Makes sense. Screw that old man for not letting the ark fall off the truck and into the mud. And now, a dramatic reenactment of the Lot family after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19.31 Young sister, I am sad for our home is gone and mommy has but turned into a large whitish rock. Me too, eldest sister. I also feel bad for dad for he hath no one to bear him a son and carry on his seed. I have an idea, dear sister. Drunk on wine shall we make father and shag him rotten, shall we? And in doing so shall we carry on his seed. I shall do him tonight and you shall do him on the morrow. And thus Moab and Banami came into existence. Yep, Lot's daughters got their father drunk and seduced him so they could bear him a son. This next chapter makes no sense to me. It's just plain bizarre. It's Judges, chapter 14. Samson, you, you know, the, the really strong guy whose power comes from the mop on his head? He sees some chick that he thinks has it going on, so he tells his father and mother to go get that girl so he can make her his wife. Again, as a mere woman, she has no say in this. She's a Philistine, his father says. Wouldn't you rather have the daughter of someone who's been circumcised instead of those nasty Philistines? Samson says no. So Samson takes a walk and runs into a lion. Suddenly, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and for entirely no reason he kills the lion with his bare hands. Take that, nature! He then visits the woman and is uh, still pleased by her. Lucky her. On the way back, he sees the lion, but instead of a rotting carcass surrounded by buzzards and hyenas and filled to the brim with maggots, he discovers the lion is filled with bees and honey. I'm not joking, bees and honey. So naturally, when you find a dead animal harboring a natural sweetener inside its entrails, you should consume some immediately and also get a carryout bag for your family, which is exactly what he does. But he never tells anyone about the lion. I mean, would you eat honey if someone told you that it came from an animal they recently killed? Later, he's eating with both his family and this chick's family, and he, and he blurts out, I've got a riddle, and he wagers no one can solve it. What does he wager? Fifty shekels? No. Some burnt offerings? No. Thirty sheets and thirty garments. Oh, of course. Okay, ladies, what is a man going to do with thirty sheets? Aside from make 29 ghost costumes or go negro hunting in the deep south, nothing. Men don't want sheets. So right there the story is completely implausible unless Samson is gay, which he isn't. Then again, he does claim to get his power from his hair. Behold his riddle. Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. I have to interrupt this story to proclaim that that is not a riddle. Oxford American Dictionary defines riddle as a question or statement intentionally phrased so as to require ingenuity in ascertaining the answer or meaning, typically presented as a game. Samson's statement is no more of a riddle than who was at Steve's party last night. 
If you were there, you'd know. If you weren't, you won't know. There's no ingenuity required if you were at Steve's party. And if you weren't, well, no amount of ingenuity is going to make you realize that information. If you hadn't been with Samson when he murdered an innocent lion, which, in a complete turn of events, poured forth bees and honey instead of maggots and gore, you'd have no idea what the hell he was even talking about. It would be different if lions were known for being filled with honey, or if Pooh Bear had even once killed a lion and ate of the sweet golden viscera within. As it stands, it's closer to obscure specialized trivia than a riddle. But I digress. No one can figure out his riddle. So they ask his wife to pry it from him. She uses the old, If you love me, you tell me. <laughs> trick, and he falls for it. He tells her. She tells the others, and, and they report back to Samson with the answer. It, l let me quote this. What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? That's not really an answer. Am I missing something? They're answering his question with two questions. Yeah, they figured out that he was referring to honey and lions, but they didn't answer the out of the strong comes forth the sweet part. It doesn't really... Yeah, anyway. Now, some people say that the fact that the bees were in the lion at all proves what a miraculous event this was. Hey, Martha, check out this miracle. I made bees land in a place they typically wouldn't. Damn, I'm good. Wait till Ross sees this. He and his cats are going to be so jealous. Didn't you also make that guy kill a lion with his bare hands? Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyone can do that. But check out the bees. If you accept that explanation, then that furthers my complaint about the riddle. It proves that the answer to the riddle was something no one would have any way of knowing. It's something that could only happen with divine intervention, or at the very least is very, very, very unlikely to occur. Well, hell, I can make up anything then. Riddle me this. Out of the fire came the mother. Don't you get it? I'm referring to that piece of grilled cheese sandwich with the image of Virgin Mary on it. Uh, anyway. Samson knows that his wife blabbed the answer and is so pissed that he kills 30 people. <laughs> and gives his wife to his friend. Here, you take this heifer. So later, Samson goes to his wife slash ex-wife's father's house and demands to see her. Her father says, I verily thought that thou hadst utterly hated her, so she belongs to your friend now. But here, isn't her younger sister even better looking? Take her instead, please. You see, ladies, you, you have no rights at all. What? Your sister was married to a man that killed 30 people for losing a stupid bet and then discarded her like so much used tissue? Well, he's back and your father just handed you over to him. Make me dinner, bitch, or I'll wager another pointless riddle all over your family. Anyway, for some reason, Samson gets mad and decides to take it out on the Philistines. So he catches 300 foxes, which would probably take some time, so you know he's pissed to be angry after all that. And then he ties their tails together with a hot firebrand. Again, this would take quite a while. Let's think about that. Let's say it takes 60 seconds to tie two foxtails together with a firebrand. And I think that's a conservative estimation. That's two and a half hours! Man, this guy has a serious temper problem! I think around 45 minutes for me, I'd start wondering if this was worth it. At around an hour and a half, my hands would be tired, and, and the blood loss from being clawed by all the foxes would make me more woozy than angry. But Samson persists. So he lets the foxes run free through the Philistine corn, vineyards, and olives, so they all burn to the ground. Remember, the, the hot firebrands are tied to their tails. 
There's got to be an easier way to set fire to someone's crops than connecting two small angry dogs together and placing hot metal between them. I guess while he was out searching for 500 foxes, he also started a fire and placed 150 firebrands into them. Do you think that any one city even has 150 firebrands? I mean, he probably had to steal them. So when did he have time to get the foxes? This is a seriously organized bout of anger this man has. He spent the better part of a day implementing a plan for revenge when he himself is at fault. Jesus, this guy is insane. Remember, why is he mad? He gave his wife away after losing a 30-sheet and 30-dresses bet and then refused to take her younger, better-looking sister as a free replacement. But wait! All this, and the Philistines know exactly who did it. So all that effort, and had he just manually set fire to the cornfields himself, he would have at least had some more time left in the day to perhaps slaughter some sleeping dormice in hopes of sweetening his tea. So the Philistines decide to get revenge. They say, Oh yeah? You burn our corn vineyards and olives? Well, we'll burn your ex-wife and her father. With fire! And so they do. <coughs> Samson then smote the hell out of them. He smote them hip and thigh. He smote them low. He smote them high. He smote them in a field. He smote them though they would not yield. He smote them till their blood congealed. And after he had smote them all, to the top of Mount Etam his butt he did haul. Three thousand men of Judah are sent to retrieve him post-haste. He agrees to be bound and carried off. Upon entering the Philistine city of Lehi, the Spirit of the Lord enters him, and the cords that bind him are burnt with fire. Awful lot of burning and asses in here. And he prepares for another slaughter. So apparently the Lord not only condones his childish anger, but thoroughly endorses it. With the flaming cord still dangling from his mighty arms, he reaches to the ground and picks up truly a weapon of mass destruction. The jawbone of a donkey. And with the spirit of the Lord in his heart, and a donkey chin in his hand, he doth slay a thousand men. Killing a thousand of anything using only a mandible works up a powerful thirst. Samson cries to the Lord, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant, and now I shall die for thirst. Now glassware hadn't been invented yet, so God used the next best thing. He caused a hollow spot in the jawbone to be filled with water. Samson drank of it. The end. What the hell was that? That sounds more like the weekend adventures of a couple of drunken frat boys than a biblical figure. Tying up animals, burning down crops ass jawbones, and this man is presented as a hero, and the Lord's spirit enters him repeatedly, and yet, he's an asshole, a murderous asshole, and in the end, God tips his martini to him as they clink glass to jawbone, smile at each other knowingly, and laugh quite a bit as a thousand thirty plus people died. Okay, okay, I saved the absolute best for last. The first book of Samuel, chapter 5. Feel free to sing along if you know the story. When we last left the Israelites, the Philistines had just stolen God's beloved Ark of the Covenant. They carefully carried it to their temple where they worshipped the god Dagon, and they set God's hope chest next to the statue of Dagon, and they slapped each other on the back for a job well done. Crikey, we stole the hell out of that box! Yeah, where's God gonna put his shoes now? and they head back to their homes to dream of further criminal activities and gumdrops. But the next morning, BEHOLD! The statue of their mighty Dagon has fallen over, with his hands and head cut off. Hey, what witchcraft is this? Could it have simply fallen over and broken? But they never found out. 
where they had brought the Lord's full fury upon them. Behold! Utterly destroyed were some of the Philistines by the most angered Lord. Those he spared were afflicted with giganticlops, thrombos, hemorrhoids! Upon their very buttholes was the wrath of God. Behold! His anger is inflamed and itchy and about the size of a small grape. The Philistines called counsel with the elders without delay. Upon tiny inflated goat-hide pillows did they sit and debate their problem. The God of Israel has punished both us and our God Dagon. What is to be done? And it was decided to remove the ark from the city, and so it was done. But God was still most displeased. He partially destroyed the city and dispatches another wave of hemorrhoids to the lot of them. So the Philistines waddled their way with the ark to the city of Ekron, and the Ekronites cried, Get that thing away from me, man! You stole it, it's your problem! I like my ass affliction-free! But it was too late. More municipal destruction and yet another eruption of hemorrhoids for those that did not perish in the flames of Town Hall. And so time passes, and asses bleed. Seven months hath the box of God been in the possession of the Philistines, and seven months hath they suffered a burning analytch that no amount of ass dragging through the sand would ease. They ask the priest to help them, and the priests reply, Send it away, but send it not empty. Inside it you must place five golden hemorrhoids and five golden mice. You heard me, five golden hemorrhoids! Wait, do you mean make the shape of an inflammation out of gold, or maybe just an impression of our inflamed butts? Huh? Well, I don't know. You two, pour molten gold into your butt cracks. Here's some salve to ease the pain. And you three, make an impression of your ass in the sand and fill it with gold. How's that? Now, after you've done that, make a brand new card for the Ark, and, and get two milch kind to pull it. What's a milch kind? How the hell should I know? Then put some jewels on the cart, and just see where the milch kind pull it. If it goes to the coast over to Bethshemesh, then, then clearly God hates us. But if the milch kind head in a different way, any other way, then this was all just a big misunderstanding combined with an outbreak of hemorrhoids of epidemic proportions and, and perchance two cities utterly destroyed. Y you see? And the Philistines did do as the geezer did proclaim, and the milch kind did head straight to the coast towards Bethshemesh. And the Bethshemeshthianites did take the jewels and offered burnt offerings to the Lord thy God. And the Lord thanked them justly by smiting the Bethshemeshthianites for gazing into his magic box. Fifty thousand seventy did he smite that day. And the Bethshemeshthianites did send messengers to take the accursed box away. And it was fetched to Eleazar's house, where it stayed for another twenty years. But that, my friends, is another story. I, I don't think I need to say anything about that one. And those are only a few of the strange, strange tales of the Bible. There are plenty more, to be sure. For the most part, I have no real reason in telling you these. I, I thought that it might be entertaining, as well as educational. In addition, I find it frustrating to, to have a debate on the Bible with a believer who hasn't even read his own user manual. If you say that these are only Old Testament stories, and therefore don't count it, it doesn't apply in today's society. Well, I couldn't agree more on all accounts. However, I'll add in that case that... You can't say homosexuality is a sin. Because God says it's a sin in the Old Testament. Several times, actually. And, and technically, it only says man cannot lie down with man as he does woman. So you know what that means, don't you? That God likes himself a little hot girl on girl action. There's even a few passages that suggest some lesbianism. 
According to the Old Testament, polygamy is fine as well as slavery. You should also offer animal sacrifices to God. So if you're going to dismiss the Old Testament, which there's no reason you shouldn't do, fine. But then you're not allowed to pick the things in it that you do agree with and then quote those. Well, I say you're not allowed. You're going to do it anyway. Also, you may say that I have misinterpreted some things here. I may very well have. I did do a minimal amount of checking, and at least some others reached the same conclusions that I have. But more importantly, I take issue with that argument. If I were a supreme being, way better than Mila Jovovich, and I had rules that I actually wanted people to follow, keyword there, want people to follow, then I think I would make sure they were simple enough for anyone to understand. The fact that someone can easily reach another conclusion is proof that, if this is the word of God, he, or she, is not infallible. At the very least, he doesn't understand his own creations. Some of my Christian friends stand by the King James Bible and proudly state that it is the true, literal word of God, and he would not let his word get corrupted. To which I will point out again that there are multiple translations of supposedly the same book. When I can point to a single passage and find that three interpretations of it are drastically different in three books, a red flag is raised. Lastly, you may say that these are just stories not meant to be taken literally. I agree! I'll leave you with a quote from the Bible. Deuteronomy 23.13 And thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon, and it shall be, when thou wilt ease thyself abroad, thou shalt dig therewith, and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. Basically, always take a shovel with you and be sure to bury your turds. You see, not just worthless stories, this thing is full of useful practical advice. Thank you for listening. Visit our website at logicallycritical.com. Send feedback to podcast at logicallycritical.com. 